it's been actually really interesting to see the transformation on how we actually get groceries into our home. That has changed pretty dramatically in the last 24 years. And certainly we've had new technologies in order to how do we market to consumers and different ways of kind of showing up in their lives. But nothing has changed more foundationally than the experience of putting groceries into your house. You know, for my first 20 years of my career, it was very, very consistent. You got in your car, you drove to the grocery store, you brought your goods home. It's not really the case anymore. Hey everyone, and thanks for listening to the one-to-one consumer marketing podcast. Today I'm speaking with Jay Piconato, Global Commerce Lead at General Mills. Thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you. You have been with General Mills for more than 20 years. Can you start by telling us a little bit more about this remarkable journey? Yeah, I don't know how remarkable it has been, Max, but I actually have been at General Mills coming up on 24 years, and it has really been the only place I've had a, a meaningful job in my career. I tell you, it's, it's marked by just a lot of diversity. I started in the brand management function here and, and worked on a bunch of different brands through our different operating in the U.S., but then bounced around to some other types of roles. I spent a little bit of time in our sales community. I spent some time in our e-commerce teams. We spent some time in our international business leading our haagen shops, marketing, which we have these kind of ice cream shops all around the globe. And so really got a chance to see a bunch of different functions in the organization and then kind of really hone experiences across a variety of markets, but also across a variety of, you know, kind of leadership roles, both from running a P&L, but then also running and leading functions. And so it's been a really nice, diverse career. I think one of the best things that I love about General Mills is it's a place where you can you can have a diversity of experience and kind of find your path to, to where we're at today. That's amazing. Almost 24 years, right? So I was 10 years old when you started there. That's great. <laughs> that doesn't make me feel any better, Max, but that's uh, like, <laughs> Yeah. No, but for, of course the whole world changed, everything changed, but what's for you the most significant change what have you observed over time? Clearly how we go about buying and, and really acquiring our products. We're a consumer packaged goods company. So I, you know, I mean, I'm selling boxes of cereal, we're selling two to $3 items. It's not like these are high, high price points, but it's been actually really interesting to see the transformation on how we actually get groceries into our home. That has changed pretty dramatically in the last 24 years. And certainly we've had new technologies in order to how do we market to consumers and different ways of kind of showing up in their lives. But nothing has changed more foundationally than the experience of putting groceries into your, in your house. You know, for my first 20 years of my career, it was very, very consistent. You got in your car, you drove to the grocery store, you brought your goods home. It's not really the case anymore. And that is what we've seen really dramatically change over the, about the last, you know, kind of four or five years. Yeah, technology is the driver for that, but maybe let's you know, dive into that part. So how's General Mills leveraging, you know, data analytics and, you know, now the, the latest AI and, you know, retention and their lifecycle marketing strategies? Yeah, well, when we start talking about how we leverage data, that topic gets super broad real fast, right? And so we're talking about our, you know, performance data so we can better analyze and understand how our business is performing and then make trade-offs that way. We have customer data. We also have, you know, employee data and how we're just making sure that we're bringing the right employee offerings to bear. But when I talk about data and probably more relevant for the, the audience here, we're really talking about our, our marketing application of data. And so when we talk about that, we're really trying to get after how do we make sure we are showing up in the right way to consumers' lives. And so when I think about marketing uses of data, you know, we can start to go in a variety of ways, but there's only really four things marketers really do with data. We target differently. So we use data to try to find the right people in the right moments. 
we personalize with the data. So I understand you would like X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to serve you more content of X, Y, and Z. We try to get some insight out of it. So, hey, I know you buy these types of items. Maybe you tend to lean towards more, you know, ethnic foods. Great. That's an insight I can use to try to target it differently and obviously provide content differently. And then we measure. So that's really it. That's what we're using our data for. And so where we're focused mostly right now is on that first one I started with, audiences. How do I better use data to model who I should be targeting my marketing towards to deliver a better result? And I know we'll get into a little bit of some of the one-to-one activity we may have, but for the most part, we're talking about, you know, kind of one-to-many. I'm not really getting after one-to-one marketing. I'm getting after how do I just group people in a way that I think they're going to be more receptive to my messaging and more receptive to the offer and the products that I'm bringing forward. And so we're spending a lot of time right now on that, that audience build. We'll move into personalization once we have those audiences. Now I have to create a bunch of different content for those audiences. Frankly, that muscles a a whole lot of strengthening media to do to be able to have the ability to create that much content. I grew up in the days we talked about when I my first heard here, grew up in the days if I had one brand champion, I'd make one wonderful PD ad for that brand champion and I'd put that out into the world. And that's kind of how I went to market. Now I have to have the nuance of 20 to 50 different audience segments that I'm really going to be targeting with messaging. And then I'm gonna have to bring content to match that audience segment. And so now we're talking about just 10 times the amount of content I have to create that's a whole different skill set. Right? That's a whole different muscle for our organization to be able to create content on that scale. And so, so that's really where our focus is. Right now, audiences, we're going to quickly get into that content personalization. Yes, we try to use some stuff for insights to try to get smarter with, with data. Of course, it's always been a sort of a standard practice. I don't think we've gotten great on first-party data to measure yet, but we will get there. But that's really where our use is, is, has been focused against. Mm-hmm. There are so many interesting points to I could dive in, but before we go, maybe for first party data, you mentioned that you're creating content for you know now fifty different audience compared to you know more or less one you you had you had before. Do you see there a chance, especially with generative AI, to say okay, I can just create a lot more content? I can not only go for fifty audiences in in the sure. near future. I can also go for five hundred. Yeah, very very much so now. The two points of that question that uh, I'd call out. One, I don't know how many audiences we need to get to to actually have the scale. Right? Like, I don't believe we need to go to one-to-one. So I don't need, you know, 150 million audiences. I don't know what that number is. And so we have to kind of work towards that. You're coming on Gen AI, 100% believe that we can start to use those new tools and technologies to really output creative in a different way. I would say we have a still a fair amount of anxiety just for all of the right reasons of you know, privacy concerns and uh, royalty concerns, and all of those things around mm-hmm. AI content that shows up in the world. I think our earlier applications are going to be things that, you know, allow us, you know, more human queries of our own databases, our ability to search our mm-hmm. data asset management system in a way to find things so we can reuse assets versus continually creating new assets. One of the things we, we sort of joke about, and I'm going to use the wrong number. I don't really remember the number exactly, but we have something like 6,000 pictures of oats in our data asset management. Yeah. <laughs> it's an absurd number of oats because, well, we're a company and Cheerios is based with oats and we, we use oats in a lot of, you know, a lot of marketing content. But the problem is we really can never find the old picture of oats. So we end up making a new, we take another one, right? And so that's how we get continued this sort of spiral. And I really think some of the tools and technology, and I think Gen AI is a great example of this, is going to help us get to much better reuse or data asset management because we're going to be able to type in human language searches and be able to find assets that we really struggle to do today. 
or even just the visual tagging is going to be able to pull up an asset without us having to actually have the metadata behind it in the first place. And so those are some of the places I think we will get to Gen AI first. I think over time, we will be more and more comfortable and the standards will come up to bear that will make the industry more and more comfortable about stuff that gets created and populated into the world without a whole lot of human intervention. But I, I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, I see. I see. Yeah, also, you could use the data of this library also for training itself, right? So that could be OGPT. Sure, <laughs> sure. Some, some day around that. But I think you speak to a very, very important point that a lot of companies, the use case for generative AI, which would create the most value is to make those kind of queries easier. And also all this kind of analytics thing, I, I just think about this all the time to say, hey, these are your benchmarks. This is the data. Give me a complete rundown on how I'm performing without me looking at five different dashboards in four different places. Completely. And that's all internal facing to do better at our, our jobs. So it's not going to come with some of the inherent risks that Gen AI has in the world. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. The audience of this podcast is mostly retention marketers, lifecycle marketers, CRM marketers, and so on. Many of them regard first-party data very highly. So I was listening to a different podcast with you and you said, rather than first-party data being the end-all-be-all, you prefer to take a cocktail approach to, to data or strategy. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm not immune from saying stupid stuff on podcasts. So uh, both <laughs> or on this one. But this is also a comment that's coming from us within our organization in trying to pivot our organization. So again, I find first party daily highly, highly valuable. It is an integral part of our go-to-market strategy. And so I am not, I'm not trying to be dismissive of it when I make these comments, but I'm also trying to steer our teams to how I want them to be thinking about our application of first party data. And frankly, we had a plan where our teams were solely focused on acquisition and acquisition of candidly just new email addresses. And so that was a bad behavior, right? That was not leading to the best experience for our consumers and it was not leading to the best application of our data. It was leading to a practice of spending too much time, energy, money, resources against acquisition. And so part of my comment in this was, is still, it's a pivot. It shouldn't all be about acquisition. First part is extremely important but I actually don't believe General Mills's competitive advantage is going to be the number of accounts we have in our CDP. I don't think that's going to be what we win on. I think there's some companies that can just really scale up their number of instances, and that's great. I don't think that's General Mills. I think General Mills is going to win on our ability to have the right pieces of data stitched together so I know how to market most effectively to you, for example, Max. So not just having your email and 250 million other emails, but the fact that I know Max has a dog in his household. I know Max has lives in this geo. I understand what you buy, how you buy, when you buy, and that these data stitched together is what's going to actually make me the best marketer. And our competitive advantage for General Mills is going to be our ability to target audiences based on a in the cocktail recipe of data that we've stitched together from first, second, and third-party sources. And I think if we can win on that that recipe and that expertise in building essentially those cocktail recipes for our audience segments, that's where we're going to win. And it's going to help us to target differentially. It's actually going to lead to better insights and it's going to lead us to the personalization at scale that we actually need to have, not lead us to a one-to-one -one marketing strategy that I don't think we're ever going to be able to scale far enough at. So that's really the push. It's, it's not at all to diminish the value of first-party data. It's actually to say, 
I need to enrich our data sets with other first party data and some second and third party data. I need to make sure that we have that entire enrichment plan more so than I want us to worry about just continued acquisition. Mm-hmm. Makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Do you think the enrichment process will be get more difficult down the line because data sources dry up because uh, due to the privacy regulations and also the big platforms making making moves towards that? Yeah, I, harder, yes. So I'm not going to have a ability to disagree with your comment there. But I think that we have, we actually have a lot of data that we can enrich our data sets and we can enrich our profiles with the data that we already have. I'll use this example. We have a partnership with uh, Fetch Rewards and that, that gets us a lot of purchase-based data. We also have a platform called Box Stops for Education where you essentially scan your receipt to earn money for your schools. And that also gets us a lot of purchase-based data. So I understand what people are buying. I have a lot of enriched data on, on their, their essentially their receipt. What's interesting about that is, yes, I can now target lapsed users or current buyers or competitive conquests. You, know, you kind of think quickly about how you would use some of that data to then build some different audience segments. But I can also start to group things together and make determinations, make assumptions about your profile based on these groupings. So it find you buy a lot of jalapenos, you buy a lot of pepper, you buy a lot of spicy food. Okay, I can enrich your data, I enrich your profile by saying you are a spicy food consumer. And what does that mean for products I'm going to serve you? What does that mean for recipes I'm going to put forward for you? What is, you know, like the, what are those offerings I can, I can bring together? And so I don't know that we always need other data sources to continue to enrich our profiles. I think we have a fair amount of data inherent in what we were already collecting in our first party data strategy to allow us to continue to round out and enrich these profiles and then let our models on our audience starting continue to learn from what then works in terms of reaction in the marketplace. And then frankly, that reaction is also going to be data that will continue to enrich our models. So as I start serving content and customized content to unique individuals or segments, and the reaction of that content, and the performance of essentially that content, I'm going to be able to funnel that back into my model to continue to enrich that model and it continue to enrich that, that consumer profile. And so long-winded story on this one, I, yeah, do I think it's going to be harder because there's a lot of you know, third-party cookies going away, all this issue? Yep, I hear you. But I think we actually have a fair amount of data. As long as we're maintaining a fairly steady pipeline of our first-party data, we can enrich it with the data that we have. Yeah, and you have also your own strategies for that, which I think is extremely valuable. And a lot of companies, and especially D2C companies, are currently, I know, you know, waking up and realize two things. The first one is we have a ton of data, so there's no shortage of data. The problem is to stitch it together. So I, I know that a lot of CDP integrations are currently going on at large DTC companies, as well as how do I find my own ways of, you know, generating and getting data in, right? So that's really high quality data. I think that's the, the other big strategy that everybody's looking at. But I think you're a little bit of a, a step ahead here by, by already having your own ways on how to do that. And I think with a charity approach, for example, that's lovely. I think that's really combining two very, very good causes. That's very cool. I'll look back to you. I mean, you built an enterprise e-commerce team from the ground up and tripling the e-commerce business in three years and driving double-digit asset increases. What kind of strategies were key for you to achieving this kind of growth? Yeah. The first is, I mean, I take over an e-commerce business uh, or the e-commerce business here, we're at the start of a pandemic. That's kind of the secret weapon, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's at home and, and forced to order their groceries online. So I don't want to assume that my role in this 
was overinflated versus just the market conditions. Like e-commerce took off. I just happened to start uh, leading that team at the start of it. But I would tell you, you know, in terms of strategies, we really had to go back to a very clear focus on the basics. And it sounds not that sexy. It's not as fun. But the reality is our organization didn't really understand the basics of what drives online performance, e-commerce performance. And so really instituting a language and a core understanding of what the basics are for our marketing organization, and then bringing the tools to allow us to actually evaluate performance against those basics. And I'll get into a little more specific here in a second, but that focus on that core was kind of it. And so we established the important things you need to be thinking about as a marketer, as it relates to the e-commerce growth is going to be, you know, our acronym is SCANNERS. Pretty much all of our companies, all our CPGs have an acronym like this, but ours is SCANNERS. And it's essentially what we believe are the kind of the six drivers of your online performance. Search, content, availability, navigation, ratings and reviews. And we added subscriptions really just because our pet team, we, we own Blue Buffalo and our pet team really highly values subscriptions. So we're trying to bring some tools to monitor and to understand our performance in that in that area. And so... He's really saying, hey, organization, everybody learn this language. This is what you need to care about. Now I'm going to start over time bringing you tools to measure how well are you showing up on the digital shelf in the world of search, both paid and organic. What is your content health online look like? What does your availability relative to in-store look like? What is your rating of reviews performance? What is your percentage on a subscription? We never had any of these tools. We never had any of that diagnostic to be able to even understand how we were performing. And once we started to show teams... Hey, you want your search score to improve, your content score is terrible, improve these things, make your digital shelf look better like this, your search will go up. And lo and behold, it does. And then all of a sudden, once search goes up, your sales go up. So it was really about driving that consistent language in an organization. I don't care what acronym you do. I think P&G is something like CARS. I, you know, like, they're all the same words. We all care about the same stuff. And so figure out how you drive that through your organization and then just ruthlessly focus on, on those fundamentals and kind of good things happen. You know, when, when I took over the e-commerce business, we had the wrong imagery on our digital shelf. We'd have a Lucky Charms box on a Cheerios PDP. I mean, we had all sorts of problems, right? So we were really about building these systems and tools to be able to recognize where those issues were and then building the back-end system to be able to make those changes effectively. So one of the other hallmarks of what we did over those couple of years, I joke about this a lot. My, we had all these content issues. I just gave you an example, like the Lucky Charms box on a Cheerios PDP. Mm -hmm. We had all sorts of content issues. And my boss was always up in my business going, hey, why don't you just hire 25, 25-year-olds, 25 put them in a room and fix all our content? <laughs> we have about 2,000 SKUs. There's about 10 to 15 things on a PDP you change. So you're talking about 20,000 things we can go change, right? Sure, I could do that. But the problem is we're going to want to customize those PDPs by our top five retailers. And then we're going to want to change up the content on those PDPs every you know, quarter, maybe based on performance or based on seasonality of the business or based on some promotion that's going on with our businesses. So now you just took me from, yes, I can hire 25, 25-year-olds to go make 20,000 pieces of content, but 20,000 pieces of content customized by our top five retailers changed up four or five times a year, just became 250,000 pieces of content. And I can't hire that. So what we mm -hmm. need to do is we need to build the system and the automation. So once our brand teams, our marketers create something, they send it to us, send it to essentially the central team, and it seamlessly populates, it seamlessly publishes all the way through retail. So we get this audit back on whether the right content's existing and what that content health score is. And we can come back to the brand teams with kind of 
analytics that are telling them this is working or this is right or this is not versus every quarter I'm asking the kind of have a manual entry of 25, 25 year olds type in 20,000 pieces of content. And so that's really where we focused our energy for the last few years. That's an amazing, that's an amazing story. And also gives you a good sense of the skill you have with and products and all the different top five retailers and so on, how it's, that is multiplying. That's, that's amazing. But it seems to me you have now quite a well-oiled machine. How are you creating the different imagery? How are you doing that? Are you then also doing that, but for, especially for paid advertising? You can even yeah. scale that further up. Are you doing that as well? So then you're also scaling your per ad sets and then per creative, you can go. Yeah. <laughs> you're hitting on exactly the goal, Max. I would say our, our last couple of years have been focused on once it's in our product information system, so our PIM system, automation, full stop from there forward. So we've really been focused on the automation, let's call it on the back half of the process. You're starting and we're now turning our attention to automation on the, the front half of the process. How do we do modular shoots so we can actually bring in dynamic creative tools that allow us to version very, very efficiently? How do we bring in these AI solutions that allow us to search our data asset management system so I don't have to make another picture of a note and I can actually reuse the assets that we have? All these things we haven't really got to yet, but that actually applies much less to the digital shelf and way more to the paid world. And that's where we're we're really turning our attention now is to bring automation into that front end of the system to you know remove redundancy, drive some efficiency, but also give us the ability to create content for those 50 audience segments versus you know one kind of piece of content that's going to roll. That makes a ton of sense. That's exactly you know you're doing exactly what I thought. That that shows also how how structured you're doing that. I mean, when you look at your current marketing channels, what for you is what is really working and what still needs to be improved. I think this is no different than consumer behavior. Social's really working. Social video really works. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, TikTok's a thing. You know, it's actually <laughs> on a lot of people's phones. So that type of content, short form content is working very hard for us. We're also entering a fairly aggressive recessionary environment. And so marketing channels that are driving, you know, differential price value, I mean, we got to care about the total value proposition of the offerings in general, but differential price value, incentive channels, Partnerships in that regard are, are working hard for us as well. No surprise, linear TV continues to be a place we shift dollars away from and into digital assets and more uh, kind of short form video or more kind of quick turn assets. And so we're really, we're really working on getting the organization comfortable with this idea of more, we use the term disposable content. And so again, when I, when I started marketing and I was working on that TV ad, man, I would test that TV ad in animatic form three or four times. We were going to spend, you know, three, $400,000 on the production of that ad. We're going to shoot that ad in California in a wonderful setting. And then we're going to run it for a year. And I, if I'm lucky, I'm going to get another budget to make a new ad the following year, but it probably run this for a couple of years. Right. And so it had to work. It had to be right. It had to have all that energy going against it. When I'm doing a TikTok video, <laughs> that's going to live for a day, right? It's way more disposable. And so really getting the organization comfortable with Shoot it on your phone. I don't care. Like It's going to be fine. It just has to bring the tenants of the brand. It's got to make sure that it still isn't, uh, you know, kind of misguiding on any sort of brand guides, but it's more in this disposable world. So getting more and more comfortable with content that's only going to live out there for a short period of time. And we, we don't need to make sure it's perfect, but we do need to make sure that it's landing message and is kind of consistently bringing kind of the brand into the forefront as our sort of evolving our creative thoughts too. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, that's very true. Also, I think 
I just realized that how much everybody was talking about linear TV, cord cutting and cable, all those kind of things, how this is shifting to the Netflix and the Amazon Primes of the world, but that especially short form video like TikTok or Instagram, Reels is such an accelerator of that development. I was not thinking about this, but I just realized that that's probably a even faster acceleration. Uh, very much so. And then we're talking about in the U.S. So then you start to get into things overseas. So China live stream commerce is also really working for us. And so there's very much different forms that exist outside the U.S. Like we're a company about 60% of our business is in the U.S. So we're going to focus on the U.S. But there are definitely some other channels that are working pretty hard for us elsewhere. Do you see live also coming to the US or do you think that's a China specific? I mean, actually, I think over time, you know, we've actually done a couple of the tests in the US on, on some live stream commerce. We're not in the same world of super apps yet that they are in, in Asia and that kind of every experience is kind of living on, you know, Alibaba the way it does. You don't have that yet in the US. Do I think it's, do I think it's coming? I, I do. I think we tend to follow, <laughs> tend to follow the trends that are going on in China. So, it's hard for me to, to bet against it, but you know, we're, I don't think we're quite there yet. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What are the, you know, three things, trends or technologies you're currently the, the most excited about? Well, we hit on it for a while. I am very excited about Gen AI. I think, and I'm not going to be the one that this is not news to anybody on your podcast that uh, I think this is going to be a frame breaking change in how we actually do our jobs, even from just the tools that are going to exist on our office desktop, right? Like it's going to be kind of amazing to be able to summarize my last week before I finish the week. I mean, just you kind of picture how this is going to be, you know, the Microsoft Office suite is going to include all of this stuff for us at some point. That's going to be going to be pretty cool. So I'm pretty excited about that technology. We've spent a lot of time talking about data. I'm actually very excited that this is technology per se, but the the explosion of clean rooms and the ability for us to have a lot of clean rooms with our retail partners and really come start to combine data to get after better audience building. I talked a lot at the beginning of this on our focus is around audiences. And I think one of the things that we don't have in our data set is super complementary is what exists in our retail partners data set. And so when we talk to e-commerce, we get into this a little bit more too. When we talk e-commerce to General Mills, we still are going through a retail partner. So our e-commerce business, I'm talking about digital sales on walmart.com that are picked up at Click and Collect or delivered to your home. That's what we consider our main e-commerce business. We're not a big direct mm -hmm. consumer business. And so really starting to leverage that data in a clean room fashion that our partners have, our retail partners have, is going to be really paramount to actually getting after what best-in-class audience building is going to be in the future. Can you quickly explain what a clean room is for the people who, who yeah. you know? Yeah, despite what I'm responsible for, I have a very poor technical background. But essentially, it is a safe place where we can bring our data in, retailers can bring their data in. It's all anonymized to get after then combining those data sets so we can target those combined data sets in a different way. And I'll give you an example in a second, but that Walmart in this case, if I'm using a partnership with Walmart is not getting my data and I am not getting their data. We are able to combine it in the clean room space so we can then target consumers in the paid media environment. So I'm going to bring in you know, people that have spent time on bettycrocker.com. And I know a bunch of different recipe content that these individuals have, have searched for, have printed. I understand that, you know, kind of the both demographic as well as geographic location of people searching and doing different behaviors on bettycrocker.com. Walmart knows the purchasing of those same consumers, right? Based on their data set, they know their baskets, they understand what they buy in food, but also what they're buying in the rest of, in the rest of Walmart. We're able to combine that and say, okay, who is most likely to want 
Pillsbury Crescent rolls, right? Based on mm-hmm. what they've purchased in the past from Walmart and what their searching behavior is on, on Betty.com. And so that allows us to kind of combine those data sets in order to target. Very cool. Very good. That probably can also be used for the whole big trend of retail media as well, right? So you can hundred percent. And for the most part, what we do with our retail partners, we are actually, to your point, talking about paid media within a retail environment. So we are talking about retail media. There's definitely other partnerships with other data sets that allow us to target in different, you know, in other paid channels. But uh, most part, we're talking about retail partners we're talking about in order to target in their network. Sounds good. So, I'm thinking in the left field because I just saw this and I'm it's getting it for my boys for Christmas, but uh, technology I'm really excited about. There's this VR hockey training tool that uh, the kids are getting for Christmas. So I know not relevant to this group at all, but it's really, really cool. So the kids put on the goggles, they'll be in the shooting room and they'll be able to figure out how to be better hockey players coming out of it. Yeah, VR, Quest 3, I think it's coming for, for Christmas really hard. And from, I think that's an amazing rise. Yeah, I'm also very excited about this. I don't know how that helps in our jobs. So far, generally, like, oh, it's very close no, to not. our jobs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it had nothing to do with people. I'm sorry. I wasted everyone's time for the last two minutes, but it's pretty damn cool. And yeah, it runs on. I think I, I think there's a Quest 5 out now, too. So the, who knows? We're going to yeah. have to figure this out. The, we also have to be excited about you know things that you know happen in our private life. I really like that because yeah. I think that's that's where our technology excitement should start probably. And that's right. uh, so I 100% for that. The last question from my side, and that is, you know, five years from now, what do you think will then be the biggest change? You know, you described me a little bit. The biggest change in the last 24 years at General Mills for you was how we're getting food into our home. If you look five years forward, what do you think is then going to change? I, I, man, I wish I had a good joke here, if nothing else, but I don't know I have one. Max, I don't know. But here's what I guess I'll answer that. It's, it's really not going to answer your question on what I think the biggest change will be in five years. I think what we are destined for is a lot of change between now and even then. You know, we talked about the biggest change I've had in my 24 really has come in the last five. And even mm-hmm. how we market really come in the last five. I think we're going to have an experience of 25 years of change in the next year and then 25 years more in the following year. And so what's kind of conditioned to me too is a couple of points I think I'd, I'd leave the group with. One, like I started my career thinking I had to be right. So I get asked questions, I have to know the answer. I used to do a lot of studying before our plans meetings on our market share in the Southeast on one part of our portfolio, right? I just, I needed to be right. When we did those ads, they needed to be right. They needed to work or I wasted two years and $2 million, right? It, we've spent a lot of our energy making sure we are being right. And I've had to change that in the last few years. I've had to not just, I can't be right anymore. I don't, I don't know enough to be right. The space is moving too fast. What I need to be is I need to be learning. And I need to be comfortable with saying three words that I was never comfortable with my first 20 years of my, my career. And those are, I don't know. I get asked a lot of questions now and I respond, I don't know. Here's what I think is changing and here's what I'll go investigate to get to a better answer. But the reality is I don't know. And that's why I kind of answered your question. I don't know what it's going to be like in five years. I don't know it's going to be like in a year from now. I mean, stuff has just been on kind of a, a pace that I'm not, not comfortable with. So I've gotten really comfortable being, my job is to learn and to be smart and figure stuff out. My job is not to know the answers because I don't think anybody can really know the answers. And so that's been one, one kind of mindset shift for me. The other one, you know, has been really focused on authenticity. And so I found when, when you're comfortable saying, I don't know, and you're figuring stuff out and you're going to work in an agile way, and then you bring authenticity to it, 
And that's authenticity as a person and as a leader, but it's also authenticity for brands. I think authenticity wins. I think when brands are authentic to their voice and to what they stand for, they win. If you authentically stand for one side of a political issue or another side of a political issue, it's fine. You're going to be fine standing for what you are as long as it's authentic as a brand. I think the same happens for our leaders. I can authentically tell a bunch of my senior leaders, I don't have any goddamn idea, but I'm going to figure it out. And I've gotten enough trust over 25 years in my my job here to go, hey, I believe him. He doesn't know, but that's okay because I know he will figure it out and he will get us to a better answer in the next three months or the next week or the next year than we would have if he's not figuring it out. And anybody that tells you they got the answer is probably wrong because they're not going to know what's going to change or the new thing that AI is going to do for us next week or whatever. It's going to, it's just too hard to keep up now. And it wasn't the early days of my career, but now, now it is. So I think getting comfortable with learning versus knowing and getting comfortable with, you just got to be authentic is where brands are going to win is where leaders are going to win. I, I think is, is what's going to get us in the next five years. That's a lot of very, very good advice. I think you, you put it into that one. So thank you for that. I think that's what these every leader should embrace in these times of quite dramatic change, as you, sort of, you know, described it. It's going to be very fundamental, frame-breaking, but also I think very, very exciting. And there's a lot of career opportunity for a lot of people who are able to embrace these new technologies. Completely. And going for that, uh, we will see, I think, very, very impressive stunts here. Well, the last piece of advice is get your kids to go into data science. <laughs> They're looking to study something that's, that's going to be feel they'll be around for a little bit. So uh, I think uh, that that's the, the last nickel's uh, worth of free advice. Yeah, yeah, that's good. But thank you, Jay. I mean, that's what all we're going to have time for the camera. But before we wrap up, if people want to follow your journey, where should they go? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm actually a little scared to say what will happen if you type my name into Google. <laughs> you probably find me on LinkedIn. That's probably about the best and only place you'll, you'll be able to catch me unless you're in the Minneapolis area and want to swing by the building. But uh, I'd probably be okay. on LinkedIn. Okay, okay. Let me put in the LinkedIn. That will work. And I mean, then thank you again. We're looking forward to see how you execute on the next decade and longer and where you can bring General Mills and, and you know, all the different in the e-commerce world and beyond that really exciting thank you for taking the time i really appreciate it max 